0: This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment, brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Thursday, November 20, 2008. I'm Allison Page at IATP in Minneapolis. Today on the program, Marie Kulik talks about toxic sludge. Shreyanne returns from an internship on Earthrise Organic Farm in Madison, Minnesota. And Steve Supan sits down with Benin's Dr. Davo Vadue at the IMF and World Bank annual meeting in Washington, D.C.
1: type of fertilizer used to grow the food we eat affect our health? IATP's Marie Kulik is the author of a new consumer smart guide that describes how sewage sludge is the basis for some fertilizers. We sat down with Marie to learn more about what is in sewage sludge, how it could affect our food, and what consumers can do. Okay, Marie, what is sewage sludge?
2: Well, it's really a complex mixture of everything that we pour down a drain, flush down a toilet, or discharge by an industry. It often contains disease-causing pathogens, synthetic chemicals from industry and the products that we use as well as heavy metals. Basically, in cities and towns across the country, we have these things called publicly owned sewage treatment plants or wastewater treatment plants. And all of these wastewaters go to the plant where they go through a variety of processes, depending on how sophisticated the plant is, that are basically designed to remove as many of the contaminants as possible before we discharge the cleanest water possible into local waterways. And the sludge is what's left over afterwards. When sludge is used on agricultural lands, it's often either spread on pasture land that then animals end up grazing on or eating crops that were raised on that land or they're, they're used on food crops like, you know, vegetables we eat, spinach, lettuces, carrots, potatoes, etc., And in terms of animals, ruminants in particular, those that graze on pasture, are known to take up large quantities of soil when they're grazing the land. And so these contaminants are in the soil and then they get into the animal. And depending on the type of contaminant, such as dioxins, PCBs, cadmium, are known to accumulate in the tissue and fat of of animals. And they're also known to be in sludge in varying quantities. So these can end up in the food chain that way. And then uh, a number of chemicals out there are known to be taken from sludge contaminant soil up into plants such as spinach other leafy greens carrots and it varies per contaminant but basically that's how they're getting into the food system
1: when did sewage sludge based fertilizer enter the market for farmers and gardeners
2: Back in the 1990s, an ocean dumping ban was put into place, and that really removed one of the less expensive options for sewage treatment plants to use to dispose of the sludge. You know, they can also incinerate it, and they also can put it in landfills or use it as landfill cover, but ocean dumping was a primary way of disposing of it. And so even though people had been using sewage sludge on farmland for years, it wasn't really used a lot. So after the dumping in the ocean was no longer an option EP, PA developed regulations that opened the door for much broader use of sewage sludge's fertilizer.
1: How strong are the regulations for sludge-based fertilizers?
2: One of the primary problems with these regulations is they set absolutely no standards for the synthetic chemicals that are in the sludge. By and large, they're not really testing for these chemicals to begin with, so they don't know what chemicals are in a given batch of sludge. Over 500 chemical compounds have been detected in sludge. There could be many more out there because many, many thousands of chemicals are used in commerce, and we don't necessarily have the technology available to detect it in sludge because it's such a complex substance. The heavy metal standards that were established by EPA, they set limits on the amount of heavy metals that can be in sludge, but they allow farmland to be contaminated to the maximum amount possible. And they're considered to be the weakest heavy metal standards of all the countries that have established rules for heavy metals and sludge around the world. The pathogen limits are also not protective enough. They were basically established to identify a few indicator pathogens that were in there that were thought to basically let you know whether or not the sludge was going to be safe to spread. And what we've learned is that some indicator pathogens last a lot longer than they thought they did, and they're not necessarily the right pathogens that they should be testing for. One of the other problems with these regulations is that there is no labeling requirement. So consumers really don't know whether or not the food they're eating has been produced with sludge, unless they're buying certified organic. When the certified organic standards were developed, many, many consumers wrote in and made sure that under those standards, sewage sludge is not allowed to be used on land to grow organic food or to feed animals that are organic. Looking for certified organic is really the primary way, and it's not not something that people often talk about. They're usually thinking about pesticides or hormone use or something like that, but sewage sludge is another factor. We created a list of many of the companies that we know of or sludge based products that are being sold across the country. And often they're only sold in a local region from your local treatment plant, but there are some products that are sold nationwide, like malorganite, a product that's made from the sewage in the Milwaukee area and for, for many, many years has been sold on shelves at hardware stores. The modern- Thank you
1: arrived in Minnesota to begin a five-month internship at Earthrise Farm in western Minnesota. Sriyan is a graduate student from Renmin University in China. She came to Minnesota to learn more about community-supported agriculture and the local and organic food movement in the United States. Allison Page sat down with Sriyan to learn more about her experience and what she'll take back with her to China.
3: Before I came here doing the internship, I think my research of focus more on agricultural economics, all the theories and all the projects that I'm doing before I came here. It's not focused on the, the f- food. It's more focused on the society, the stability of the rural societies. That's part of my research before I came here. I feel when your hands feel the dirt on the earth I feel what I need to do in the future is make the human beings and the Earth get more closer. I think that changed why I changed my directions to the food system. I should say, as my generation, all the students, they want to go to college. Especially, there are many students come from the rural areas of China that they want to go to college in order to leave the rural areas, they, they like more city life than the rural. Areas. So now more and more people are leaving the rural areas. They become more poor and poor in there.
0: This question, you definitely need to take some time to think about it. Yeah. But if you have any initial thoughts, or just talk about some obstacles to getting the CSA model adopted in China.
3: You you know, I want to start a CSA in my school, in my university, has a experimental farm near the school, but it's in the suburban area of Beijing. I would like to start there. I feel it's easier to start that farm as it's not owned by a, a real farmer, and we have many volunteers working there and they can help me. And we have resources from the universities. Many professors could become the first CSA members. But it's hard to imagine how this model can be used in a real farm owned by a farmer. I feel the most different for The Chinese farmers and the farmers in the United States is their values. In United States, I feel the farmers, they are the same with the citizens in the cities. They have all the same health care and all the other things. But the farmers in China, their values and their way of living are quite different from the cities. So how they can accept this localization, the CRC model in China, in the rural areas. What lessons from Earthrise will you take back to China with you? The most important part is buy local, buy fresh. And most important is how we should buy food from the local farmers and how we should know where the food comes from and the, the whole food system in the world that is changing now and is the globalization is coming all around the world. China now I feel is uh, following the United States. It's kind of in some period of uh, we use more and more chemicals and fertilizers and the farmers they want more profit. The recent crisis of the infant powder, the milk powder, that's now is happening more and more in China. I think the the lessons from Earthrise that I will take back to China is I will tell more and more people and I will influence by my behavior to tell them which is the correct way that we should do. Before I came to EarthRise, I didn't expect that how all the people living in that community they interact with each other and how they take food and the earth and all the animals as part of them. There are two couples. They are the farm manager this year. And all their way of living, very sustainable for the earth. As I know that some of the people living in the world, that they take how their attitude to the life and and all the other animals. But I feel I didn't expect that before I came to Earthwise. Thank you so much. Thank you.
4: Welcome to Radio Sustain. We are at the IMF World Bank Annual Meetings in Washington, D.C., interviewing Professor Davo Vaudoué of the University of Cotonou in Benin. Welcome to Radio Sustain. Thank you. Dr. Vaudoué is in the Department of Economics in the Agricultural Extension Program. Could you tell us a little bit about the recent history of agriculture in Benin and what the infrastructure for
5: agriculture is like? Uh, in Benin, uh, before the structural adjustment, the government played a big role in the promotion of agriculture, either in uh, agriculture extension or in agricultural research. And uh, for that, we have uh, spread all over the countries agricultural extension people to help farmers to adopt new varieties, new technology, and so on. But uh, with respect to the adoption of a structural adjustment. And
4: uh, the structural adjustment are the programs of the World Bank and the International yeah. Monetary Fund. Yeah. Okay.
5: With respect to that, uh, the government was forced to withdraw some of uh, its economic activities uh, in uh, rural areas and to leave it to farmers' organization. And uh, the transition between the government-owned organization to farmers taking over, the transition was very quick, and it doesn't allow people to be well prepared to take over. And the farmers' uh, organization were experimenting a lot of problem and nowadays the government come back and is recruiting field workers so that they can contribute to the promotion of agriculture again and they are putting a lot of effort and funds in agriculture so that we will avoid the situation we experiment with the food crisis when we do not get enough food to feed our population
4: And based on on the very extensive knowledge that you have of agriculture, not only in Benin, but in West Africa, could you tell us a little bit about what's happening in terms of the effect of the food price crisis on consumers and on farmers in Benin? About the
5: food crisis, I may draw your attention on the fact that in our country, we experiment a shortage of food in a certain time of year year. But uh, with the present situation, the shortage of food is longer than before. And we had also a problem of importing rice, which became food crop in Benin. And uh, due to that, the government have decided to cut taxes on the food crop imported so that the prices can be affordable to the population and we got some help from our friend countries for getting some rice from them to be able to cope with the food crisis. And uh, with respect to that, uh, the government have taken a number of uh, solutions, for example, investment in agriculture, in food crop, which was not its priorities before. The government used to invest in export crop, mainly cotton, for which there are a kind of subsidies. The system was very well organized so that the people can get uh, pesticide on uh, cotton but not in food crop. So the government supported input subsidies for
4: cotton but not for food crops. And the food crops are which crops?
5: Uh, the food crops are maize, yam, peanut, sorghum, cowpeas, we have also cassava and we do not pay enough attention on uh, those food crops. For example on uh, sorghum there are not enough research about that and it is a research made by uh, the farmer themselves which continue to help farmers to improve the quality of uh, the sorghum they are producing. Well, thank you so much for
4: interviewing with Radio Sustain. Uh, This is Steve Supan and Dr. Davo Vodoue. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at IATP.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Lilliston. Our technician is Patrick Sy. The music on the program was Tall Fiddler by Deo, Every Man for Himself by Roadrunners, Straight to Hell by The Clash, and Holy Thursday by David Axelrod. I'm Alison Page. Thanks for listening. biased,
5: (laughs) because I'm a vegetarian, so I'm like, good job.